AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2023, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of AHLA's Top 10 series. My name is David McMillan. I am the Managing Principal of Consulting for PYA, and I am pleased and privileged to be facilitating this session today with uh, someone who's uh, familiar to many of our AHLA listeners, uh, Dion Lomax. So today, Dion is going to be talking with us about uh, antitrust enforcement trends in the healthcare industry. So Dion, for those who may not know you, would you take just a moment and introduce yourself before we get started? Sure. Thank you, David. So nice to be here. Of course, I love HLA, like hopefully most of those who are listening. I am Dion Lomax. I am Managing Director of Antitrust and Trade Regulation at Affiliated Monitors, Inc. So I'm an independent monitor, but you know, why have one job when you can have two? So when I'm not doing monitoring, I'm also a professor at Boston University, where I teach at the School of Law as well as at the Questrom School of Business. So nice to be here. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Dion. And as everybody can tell who knows you, and for those who just heard that introduction, Dion is well qualified to be speaking on this subject today and sharing her insights with us. So as we kick it off, Dion, um, are you ready for me to go ahead and, and get us started? Yes, let her rip. <laughs> fantastic. Well, um, there's been a lot of activity um, over the course of the last few years uh, with respect to healthcare uh, antitrust enforcement. What are some of the big ticket items that we should probably pay closer attention to uh, in the upcoming year as we start 2023? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. You know, every year, I think for the past few years, I feel like I've been um, saying, oh, there's a host of activity and we're having an unprecedented time. And each year, it never fails. I'm saying it again. We remain in the midst of unprecedented times in terms of antitrust enforcement generally, but specifically the healthcare sector. So what are the big ticket items? Well, you've got the DOJ continuously prosecuting uh, conduct criminally in the healthcare sector, particularly as it relates to labor market collusion. You have many hospitals and health systems continuing to seek to merge horizontally. Some providers are also seeking to vertically integrate. You know, no surprise, the agencies are continually, continuously aggressively challenging horizontal transactions that they view as anti-competitive, as well as vertical transactions. You've got the FTC doing retrospective studies with respect to certificates of public advantage or COPAs, and now looking into the PBM industry. Of course, state attorneys general are not to be forgotten. They are very active, particularly as it relates to challenging healthcare mergers. And we have the FTC that just issued proposed rule that would ban employment non-competes nationwide. So I'll just stop there. But um, but yeah, those are the big ticket items, David. <laughs> well, let's 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 if we can let's pick up on that last one. Can you give us some thoughts from your perspective about what this proposed rule might might mean for the healthcare industry? 
Yeah, this is this is really, really interesting. And in, of course, the impact on something like this. And, and again, let's let's just say these are proposed rules, right? So they've got to go through the rulemaking process. So we're not assuming that this is a done deal. But if it were to go into effect, you got to look at all of these hospitals and health systems and ancillary providers where non-competes are kind of common. You know, A, if you're an anesthesiologist for XYZ, uh, hospital or health system, if you leave for a couple of years, there may be a, a clause in the contract that says, hey, within a 20 or 25 mile radius, you can't do anesthesiology services or maybe radiology. So if this goes into effect, all of that is, is done with. So let me take a few steps back and just, and just bring us up to, um, you know, kind of, let's recall kind of maybe where this started. And that is about a year and a half ago, President Biden issued an executive order announcing- right post like 72 different initiatives about promoting competition in the American economy. One of the things that was focused on, of course, is healthcare and abuse of market power, all of that. But Biden proposed that the FTC use its rulemaking authority, remember, to curtail the unfair use of non-compete clauses and other agreements that unfairly limit worker mobility. So for the last year or so, we've been saying, hey, nothing, you know, he put this out there, nothing yet from the FTC. And then of course, on the eve of us having our discussion, this rule comes out and some will ask, well, why the focus on non-competes, right? You know, we've always been taught that non-competes, even in, you know, in certain contexts, of course, when you're talking about a merger or transaction, they've always been permissible within certain boundaries, as long as they're reasonable in time and scope. Even employment non-competes have been viewed as you know, reasonable, as long as, you know, reasonable non in time and scope, not overly burdensome on the employee. So like why this focus? Well, the FTC is, has said in this proposed rule, as they issued this proposed rule, that they view post-employment non-competes as an unfair method of competition that violates Section 5 of the FTC Act. From their perspective, they, they suppress employee wages, it hinders innovation, these things prevent entrepreneurs from starting new businesses, block, you know, basically blocks employers from hiring the best talent. And so if this proposed rule goes into effect, it would make it illegal for an employer to enter into or to attempt to enter into a non-compete with any worker. And notice there's no, it, there's no categories of workers. It doesn't say, well, only if you're full-time or only if you're a um, independent contractor. It applies to full-time employees as well as independent contractors. It would also make it unlawful for them to maintain a non-compete with a worker. So if you have existing non-competes, now you have to rescind any existing non-competes and actively inform workers that they are no longer in effect. Um, it, it, you have to represent to your employee base or your workers that under no, un, under certain circumstances, that worker is um, uh, subject to a um, non-compete. Like you cannot do that anymore. You can't tell them that they're subject to a non-compete. So this is, this is pretty huge. And as you might imagine, there's always been some, already been some backlash. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is already saying, wait, you know, Congress didn't give the FTC that, that breath of authority. This flies in the face of what a lot of states are already doing to combat non-competes. Um, and so I'll stop there I, I, uh, to see if you have any, any follow-up questions before I continue. Well, I, so let's just follow up maybe in one area. Uh, as we think about a lot of our a lot of our listeners and and the things that occupy their day and the challenges that they face, um, many of them are um, as as we as we you mentioned 
there's there's a lot of ambulatory ancillary um, healthcare facilities and entities out there. There are professional services contracts um, that are associated with those, oftentimes including uh, contracts, as you mentioned, anesthesiology with with physicians. So let's take a market, for example, where there are two, three, four different competitors. Let's say it's primary care in a market and, and one is a private group and one's a hospital employed group and one is a group that maybe maybe has some sort of investment from some third party, a, a private equity firm or perhaps even um, you know a, an insurance company. Um, if, we, if we roll that out and we think about what's going to happen, um, is, it, is it sort of open season for competition from an employment standpoint among all of those various competitors in that same market? No, no, I, I absolutely think that that's likely the goal, right? To free up some of those providers from those types of arrangements. I think the, you know, if this goes into effect, what's the, you got to think, oh, okay, what's the provider, you know, what's a hospital going to do that, that feels like, oh, no, now I don't have my critical mass. Because if you think about population health management and all that, the, the in, in value-based care, the idea is that, hey, you know, we, we've got the physicians who know our system and maybe there's some type, you know, there, there's maybe there's some type of integration there and what have you, clinical integration or something. And, you know, this, you know, having this group of physicians connected with us in this way really is going to help reduce costs, at least, you know, greater care, greater, you know, for our patients in higher quality and all of that. So, you know, the provider now has to say, hmm, this goes into that. What do I do now? It, all I can do maybe is, you know, I don't know, just acquire more physicians and, and sweeten the pot, offer more, you know, higher salaries, offer, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to, it's, it's a free yeah. call now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and, and more to come, right? Like you said, this is a proposed rule. We're starting to hear the commentary already. We'll follow that closely. And so maybe, you know, with that as a, as a great primer for folks to kind of keep their eye on, we'll, we'll turn the page and flip to a new question. How about that? Sounds good. Sounds great. Well, let's, let's turn uh, just a minute to criminal prosecution because the, the healthcare and I trust bar um, recently uh, viewed the DOJ's criminal prosecution of healthcare providers as a very significant uh, moment, right? Impact. Can you, can you help us understand that reaction a little bit? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's the reaction was so significant because it really represented a very stark departure from how the DOJ previously had been challenging such conduct in the healthcare industry. And so it, it's not that the DOJ had never challenged similar conduct in the past, but the enforcement tool that they were using or started to use was different. So under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, it prohibits contracts, combinations, and conspiracies that unreasonably restrain trade. So we all understand that to mean, okay, of course, no price fixing. You know, you know, you can't agree on price or components of price with a competitor. Well, same goes for, you know, competition for labor, right? You can't get together and agree on nurse wages or executive wages. Same type of deal. It's still going to violate Section 1. And so you know, federal antitrust challenges related to wage suppression and, and, and things of that nature, you know, happened. They still happened rarely, though, but it was, they, they were brought civilly. So if you look back to the mid-1990s, you'll see that the DOJ in 1994 brought, brought a wage-fixing case against the, um, 
Utah Society for Healthcare Human Resource Administration that dealt with registered nurse wages. You'll see that in the mid 2000s, they brought a case against the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association. Same thing for you know, fixing rates paid to nursing agencies. Um, it wasn't until, gosh, 2020 <laughs> that we saw the first criminal prosecution. And that was in reference to um, a, basically market division, essentially. It was a, a case against the U, uh, Florida Cancer Specialist and Research Institute. And in that indictment, they were alleged to have conspired with another oncology clinic and other unnamed co-conspirators to allocate markets in Southwest Florida. Idea being, okay, we'll do medical oncology and you will do radiation oncology. And so of course they ended up, they, they got a deferred prosecution agreement from the DOJ, but they had to pay a hundred million dollar fine to the, to the DOJ and this is FCS and they paid $20 million fine to, to Florida. And so, you know, criminal prosecutions have, have been ongoing since that point in time. Well, that's fascinating and chilling uh, to, to certainly hear for, for everybody. But um, as we think about what you just described, just one follow-up question. In a world where acute care hospitals right now are dealing, well, all healthcare providers are, but we read about it most often with our acute care providers dealing with significant staffing shortages. Um, how, how do you think that the, the environment in the market right now with respect to the drastic need for healthcare labor and the apparent lack of supply for that labor may or may not impact some of the circumstances that you just described? You know what, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, if, there, if your question is whether or not that's going to, because there's a lack of supply and issues, is that going to deter the DOJ? No. Is that lack of supply going to <laughs> entice providers to maybe continue in, in this type of conduct and roll the dice? I don't know. And, and the reason why I say that is because we do recognize that when the government brings these cases, it's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to actually win the cases, right? So I mm -hmm. hate to say it, but there, there may be some providers out there that are like, hey, you know, DLJ didn't do too on their first two go-arounds with this. So, you know, maybe we roll the dice. I, I would not recommend that. You know, I'm no longer practicing attorney, but I would not recommend that. But yeah. Um, but I think it's it's it. We have to wait and see. It's a wait and see approach, I guess. Yeah, it certainly is, and and I think some of the unprecedented times we've faced the last three years, um, you know, quite honestly, haven't sort of made their way through the legislative or the ju judicial process just yet. So all of this is is um, is something to keep our eye on, certainly. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for that. That's. Fascinating. All right. So let's talk about the DOJ for just a minute. And to your point about, hey, they've not always been super successful. We know they've they faced some uphill battles um, lately, especially going again to this this issue about labor and trying to uh, prosecute healthcare entities for wage fixing or no poach kind of conduct. Um, so in your in your opinion, let's kind of tackle that. Why did the DOJ maybe lose its first wage fixing no poach case? Uh, sort of battle, and, and what do you think the outcome is for these future cases? 
Yeah, so what, what I'll say is this. I, I think that, um, so U.S. versus Jindal was the first criminal wage fixing case, which was, um, that was brought in December of 2020, of course, went to trial. And the, the second one was the U.S. versus DeVita, Inc., and that was the first criminal no-coach case, which was filed in December of 21 and, of course, went to trial. And as we know, both of those cases, the DOJ lost. Now, let's look at the wage fixing case for a moment, the Jindal case. Uh, in that matter, the DOJ alleged that Jindal and Rogers, who were operators of a, a physical therapy staffing company, essentially conspired with competitors to basically lower rates paid to physical therapists and physical therapy assistants. They, the government, presented evidence that Jindal and Rogers had reached out to, you know, a number of competitors and that ultimately they entered into an, an unlawful agreement with one of those competitors. The defense um, you know, put, of course, during their, their, their time at trial, they had a contrasting story. They basically said, hey, there was no agreement with any of the competitors. They cited evidence that the sole alleged co-conspirator, basically yeah, they initially agreed, but subsequently stated, hey, that they never planned to go through with it. Uh, the defense also attacked the credibility of the co-conspirator whose court testimony uh, differed from the statements that that witness had made to the FTC during the investigation. So I mm. think that may have had a lot to do with why the, why the jury did not, you know, why the jury acquitted. Uh, the DeVita case, that was the no poach case, and that was the, uh, a criminal indictment against DeVita, the former CEO of DeVita, Kent Theory, alleging that Theory coerced three other companies led by the Vita alumni, essentially, to agree not to recruit or poach each other's employees or hire away each other's employees. Um, in that case, the defense uh, um, basically argued and said that there was no evidence that the deals were made in order to end competition between DeVita and these competitors. But, well, they just, you know, they know theory and they agreed to maintain a relationship. So the, the jury agreed with that and there, and there were no indictments. But I think the most notable aspect of these the cases is what happened before the trial. And that is that these uh, judges that were assessing these motions to dismiss both of these indictments um, declined and said, no, we think that in the gentle matter, this indictment sufficiently alleged a per se violation of section one because hey, wage fixing, is merely a different form of price fixing. Similarly in DeVita, the court held that the agreement among the competitors to, the alleged agreement among the competitors to allocate markets um, should be given per se treatment because that court said that, hey, that's no different than a horizontal allocation of goods or services. And the court basically said, quote, if naked non-solicitation agreements or no higher agreements allocate the market, they are per se unreasonable. I think that that's really what we need to focus on. And, and let's not forget, in late October of last year, the DLJ did get its first win in U.S. versus he. That was a case that was brought um, involving um, an alleged conspiracy with a competitor to allocate employee nurses and to fix wages for nurses. And then the defendant in that matter essentially pled guilty and uh, agreeing to refrain from you know, recruiting each other's nurses and suppress the wages, et cetera. So technically that's their first win. It wasn't, it wasn't because it was a jury trial though. So I think the, the, the jury is still out on, on how juries right. assess these types of cases.
Yeah, literally, the jury's still out on how juries will assess these types of cases, right? Pun pun intended there. But, but well, let, let me just yeah. say one other thing before you ask your next question, and that is, you bet. I think, you know, what does all this mean for healthcare and 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 for healthcare participants? I think it means you really do have to, you know, we've always focused on antitrust on prices and all of that. So what we now realize is you got to bring that human resource component into it. Make sure that your human resource officers understand what types of agreements they can enter into with whom, you know, and that also includes the whole non-compete situation, right? You even have to look at the state that you operate in because there are a number of states, I didn't talk about this earlier, but there are a number of states who even in recent years started changing their laws around what's a, a, an acceptable post-employment non-compete agreement in the state. You got Oregon and Nevada. There's all these, some states have said, hey, we gotta um, you know, limit it to certain workers. Some states have said, well, you can only have up to a 12 month. So human resources really needs to keep their eye on those types of arrangements as well as these types of things to recognize that they're doing training with their employee base to understand what's uh, what's important what's permissible and what's not permissible, they need to have a robust antitrust compliance program that is effective in really looking at making sure that the culture of the entity is to be compliant with the antitrust law. So I think that at the bottom line, that that's really key and important. Well, that's, that's great counsel and, and actually just kind of transitions us into what will probably be our final question here before we wrap things up. But you know, th this idea of competing for scarce resources and making sure that we, we have a compliance program in place that is that is monitoring that. Well, if we elevate that to a macro level, you know, we know that there's a lot of merger and consolidation activity continuing in this industry. And and at a macro level, that is just that, right? And a, an ability to, to go for scale, to compete more effectively, more efficiently in its most noble case, that is to provide better care. Uh, but the bad actors give us all a bad name in, in terms of what they do and, and they cast a long shadow. So can you can you kind of uh, wrap this up for our listeners maybe in talking about what's going on in the in the world of mergers and acquisitions, what we need to be keeping our eye on and and you know, especially some of the mixed results we've seen uh, recently with respect to some of the challenges. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So so once again, and uh, there's two aspects to kind of look at. One is Again, going back to Biden's executive order, right, from a year and a half ago. In that order, he urged the DOJ and the FTC to address consolidation um, in the industry and maybe consider, you know, revisions to the horizontal or the, and or the vertical merger guidelines. Uh, one of the things that you saw in response to that was early last year, the agencies issued requests for information, kind of seeking some public comment around certain issues. One topic concerned issues of monopsony power or buyer power, also labor markets, you know, basically out of a concern that a transaction can lead to reduced employment and wages and or adversely impact working conditions. Um, I think both agencies have been quite active. You saw last year the FTC challenged four hospital mergers. Um, all of these mergers, by the way, were abandoned by the parties ultimately. They, the Hackensack mm -hmm. Meridian Health, Inglewood Healthcare in New Jersey. You had the Lifespan Care New England Health System, Rhode Island. RWJ Barnabas Health and St. Peter's Healthcare System, New Jersey. And then in Utah, mm -hmm. HCA Healthcare and Stewart Healthcare System. And mm -hmm. so I, I think 
you know, why did you, you know, why would the parties abandon these merger challenges? Well, because merger challenges, they're harder and harder for parties to win when the FTC or the DOJ, whomever is challenging your transaction. And um, why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is the merging parties have a heavy burden when they are trying to bring forth credible evidence of efficiencies claims and things of that nature. It's over, over time has become more and more difficult <laughs> for parties to mount an effective merge. I can't remember the last time a, a merging parties have succeeded <laughs> in, at trial on a efficiencies defense, right? The other thing mm -hmm. is, you know, if you have bad documents, internal documents, can be a, you know, killer to a deal, you know, because that that serves as a, a heavy base of evidence for the agency mm -hmm. when they're seeking to challenge a merger. Um, so it, the other thing that I think that we need to look at is the fact that the agencies are now also looking at vertical integration in the industry and where they see vertical integration among, you know, healthcare market participants, they are challenging those deals. Now they did lose recently, um, you know, United Health Group and the Change Healthcare, uh, the DLJ lost that case. ALJ right. denied the FTC's bid to block the Illumina and the Grail case. But that doesn't mean that the agencies are going away. They absolutely are looking at the impact of providers that vertically integrate and whether or not, you know, how that's impacting competition in the industry. Is it giving a competitor access to information it shouldn't have? Is it allowing a competitor to um, kind of block a, another competitor from competing? Is someone being foreclosed from the market? All of these things are important considerations when you're looking at mergers. And the other thing that I'll say on this, on this point is, you know, one of the common themes and everything that we've even talked about here today has to do with the impact of conduct on labor markets. And so the other thing that emerging parties have to really consider and look at is that's something that the agencies are going to start asking. They're not just going to ask what impact does this, does this hospital merger have on general acute care inpatient services. They're going to want to say, does it have a negative impact on your, your, your nurses, your physicians, your you know, employee physicians, certain, certain aspects of the labor market. They're going to start talking to unions in those areas to, to assess Look at you know whether or not that deal has, has an impact on um, the labor market as such as well. So that's something that merging parties need to be prepared for even before they maybe even have to submit a hard Scott Rodino filing or something of that nature. Right. So, so as we think about sort of wrapping this up and and all of the comments that you've and the expertise that you've shared with us, um, number one, uh, the environment is dynamic. And we've got to keep an eye on what's happening because cases are being litigated and precedent is being set and we need to, to keep our eye on that, right? No, absolutely. And, and let's not forget, again, about the state attorneys general. The state AGs, they are out there. They are very aggressive and challenging mergers. Some states also have now passed in recent years state level pre-merger no notification statutes that don't have the same kind of monetary thresholds that the federal, that the HSR statute has. Right. So that, right. you know, that means that a lot of deals that normally would kind of fly under the radar, you can't assume they're going to fly under the radar. So the, the, the moral of the story is to just be prepared and be ready. <laughs> well, and, and to that point, and, and not necessarily 
doesn't go unnoticed. This is a bit of a shameless plug for our audience here, but 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 get qualified counsel, get qualified professionals involved early. Um, it it can be a lot more costly to try to go back and redo something than perhaps design it in a compliant fashion to begin with, utilizing competent counsel, you know, qualified professionals to help you with that. I'm sure you'll agree, so I won't necessarily even uh, ask you to to respond um, to respond to that. And and sort of in just the final couple of minutes here, Dion, anything else that you would you would recommend to our listeners or you would want them to know as they think about the antitrust environment looking into 2023? Yeah, the DLJ, another recent development, the DLJ is now prosecuting monopolization cases criminally. They paid lip service to potentially doing that sometime last year or so, and now it has happened. In, in October, they brought, they secured their first criminal monopolization conviction in more than 40 years. It was a, it was a, it's U.S. versus Nathan um, Nefizito, who pled guilty to one count of attempted criminal monopolization in violation of Section 2. Of course, you know, that had to do with, you know, um, crack ceiling services for public highways, but... Hey, they're, they're in this area. I think the healthcare sector needs to be aware of this. And who knows when or if we'll see a similar challenge in the healthcare sector. Absolutely. Certainly something to keep our eye on. So as a reminder to our listeners, uh, this has been David McMillan from PYA and Dion Lomax. And we've been talking with you today and, and listening to all of Dion's great expertise about what to expect in 2023. Uh, as we think about antitrust enforcement and the environment that we're that will continue to evolve, Dion, thank you so much for your expertise and for being with us today, for um, taking time out of your day to to share that expertise with our audience. We're so appreciative. Thank you, David. Happy to do it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.